37 verses 2 to 8. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Jesus more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose up and stood upright. Well, your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 to 38. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Amen. Thank you, Sam, for reading the word of the Lord today. As Sam has read, Joseph was the favorite of his father, and he was the favorite target of his brothers. He was hated because he was the favorite. And um, I went on, uh, I did a little bit of quick search uh, this week on, uh, just Googled this, how do you handle haters? <laughs> how do you handle haters? And I got, boy, did I get a lot of hits on that, lots of responses. But list after list, people actually have developed quite a, of their own um, point, you know, bullet points for what to do in this case. It, when people don't like you and people treat you badly, how do you handle it? And uh, there's lots of good advice. Some of it wasn't so good. One of the ones that I thought wasn't so good was just imagining the person that hates you having a terrible life. You know, I thought maybe not that helpful. Maybe doesn't get you over your bad feelings uh, to just think evil thoughts about them. But um, a lot of it was good advice. But you know what? I was looking specifically to find one piece of advice. And it's the, it's the advice that is that not, well, when Jesus gives it, it's not advice. When Jesus gives it, it's a command, a command to his followers. And uh, just let me just read a little bit of that again. Love your enemies, do good to them. Lend to them without expecting anything back. That sounds radical. Like, uh, lend to your enemies without expecting to get it back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High. People will be able to identify, oh, hey, you must be related to God. You must be related to Jesus, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. So be merciful, just as your Father is merciful, and goes on to say, forgive, and you will, and you will be forgiven. So what I was looking for through all these lists of how to handle haters was, do any of them say you should forgive? your haters. And uh, I actually found it. It took me a long time to find anyone who actually said it. And it was in a list where they'd actually interviewed 10 super high-level leaders, people leading at very high levels in their 
organizations or charities or businesses or whatever, but these were really high-level leaders, and one of them actually said, have you considered forgiveness, to actually forgive the people who've treated you wrong? And uh, everybody else had sort of a, you know, well, don't let them get you down and, you know, keep on with what you're doing and have a positive attitude and, and uh, you know, and here's how to make them look bad or things like that. But I've only found one in many, many searches that actually said, what about forgiveness? Of course, for the followers of Jesus, forgiveness is a command, not an option. It's a command. And for the rest of the world, it's an option to consider, and, and maybe they'll find that one, that one how to handle haters site where it says, have you thought about forgiveness? But for followers of Jesus, uh, our directions are very clear. We're called to forgive. But the story of Joseph... Um, I'm going to get into it here in this morning. It's, it's not, we're trying not to treat the stories that we're, we're reading and as we engage with the story. By the way, if you're here for the first time this morning, our church is on a journey together in reading the scripture. We're reading, uh, we want to understand the story of the Bible from the very beginning, the book of Genesis, to the very end, the book of Revelation. And so what we've done is we've ordered in uh, reams and reams of, reams, is that the right word? Stacks and stacks, there we go, of the, this book, The Story. I took my cover off it so I won't get it mixed up with yours, and then I put my little insignia on it so I really wouldn't get it mixed up with yours because I know lots of you have one of these now. Uh, we have one free for every family. There's a table out there. If you haven't got one, then please take one home as a, as a free gift from us. We'd love for you to be able to engage the Bible through this selected reading plan which takes you from the beginning of the story to the end to help you see that The Bible is one continuous story. Now, there's lots of little stories in the Bible. There's lots of little stories in the Bible. Every week, we've been sort of posting a little... uh, You won't be able to see me now, but every week, we're posting sort of what we're talking about each week. And you might go, wow, I really like that story about Adam and Eve. I learned something from that. Or I really like that story about Abraham and Isaac. I really learned something about that. Or today, maybe you'll like the story about Joseph. I learned something from that. But here's something I don't want you to miss. It's not about Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, or Joseph and his brothers. It's about what is God doing. What is God doing? What's the overarching story? We've been saying, what's the upper story? Not just the lower story. Because that's how we often look at our lives. We say, hey, this happened in my life. What's going on? What's, you know, what, what, where's the meaning in this? Where's the significance in this? There is a bigger story in the Bible, but there's a bigger story that arcs over all of history. And that's the story of God's uh, creating man, man's fall, and God's all-out search and rescue effort to bring us back to himself. So that overarching story, some people say, well, I like the Bible. It's got many good stories in it. Yes, it does. But they are a part of a greater story. And so we never want to miss that uh, fact. And so that's what we're doing. So the story about Adam and Eve is a story about God. And the story about Abraham and Isaac is a story about God. And the story about Joseph and his brothers is a story about God. And through all of the stories that we're going to talk about in this next number of months, we're going to learn not just about the characters, the minor characters in the story, but we're going to learn about the major character in all of the stories that the Bible is all about. We're going to learn about God. What is he like? And how does he reveal himself uh, through the Bible to us so that we come to understand him more and can actually enter into relationship with him? 
So first week we talked about, I'll just do a quick review here. I won't do this for months because it'll be impossible to review. That's all we'll do. But today I'll do a quick review. Week one, we talked about the temptation that humans were, humans were like the part of God's creation that he was most passionate about. And a temptation came to them right away. And the temptation, we summed it up in that first week, basically this. Were, were Adam and Eve going to choose their will or God's will? Were they going to choose their own way or God's way? Could they trust God that what God had planned for them was the ultimate good for them? Or was there something that they could get if they defied God, if they turned from God, if they chose their own will over God's will? And they did choose their own will. That was the temptation behind, you know, the whole serpent and that whole, the fruit and all those things was, was the I will, I will, not God's will. And so then we, we compared and contrasted that with Jesus, who does the exact opposite. Jesus, when he's facing the cross, uh, let me just read it to you uh, real quickly. Um, Luke twenty two forty two says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup, a cup of suffering. Take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So the opposite of what happened in uh, the Garden of Eden, Jesus shows us the opposite response. Instead of saying, my will, we say, your will. And uh, so we talked about that in the first week. The second week, again, the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is also having questions about God, right? Adam and Eve were saying, can God be trusted? Is God holding out on us? If we take this fruit, will, will the knowledge of evil be a good thing for us, be a delightful thing for us? Will it make us feel more powerful, significance? Will it lead to enlightenment, well, they found out it didn't lead to enlightenment. It led to darkness, futility, a darkened mind, darkened hearts. And uh, in fact, it goes on in Genesis to say, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Wow, that's a, that's a big fall from where they were at. And so God, of course, the end of the chapter of that story is God starts again. He hits the reset button. He finds one obedient man amongst the descendants of Adam and Eve, the man Noah. And of course, we know, mostly know the story about he builds a boat and, and God starts over uh, with that righteous man uh, to begin to work through his generations. Now, Abraham and Isaac, we have Abraham who's getting to know this God, that he, and he's acting in faith when he's called to another nation or to called to another place to go, to leave his family and the familiar, to follow this God. But there's lots of points, the places where we realize he doesn't fully trust God. He doesn't, hasn't come to fully trust God. He doesn't trust God when people think his wife is really good looking and, and then he gets fearful about, will people try to kill me so they can have my wife? And so he cooks up this scheme about, just say you're my sister. And then that gets him in even more trouble and gets her in trouble. I've thought about that story a little bit more. I thought, he was more scared for his own sake than he was for his wife's safety. Man, what a chump. <laughs> but I can't get too, uh, you know, judgmental because I could be chumpy at times too in my life so I gotta you know watch that but uh, he did lots of things where he was just sort of like not showing that he didn't fully trust God in every area of his life so God brings him to a testing point that asking him to give up and surrender his own son now last week we talked about that if you weren't here for last week I think one of the key points that you need to understand is God throughout all of scripture reveals that he hates human sacrifice which was common in that day people worshiped Baal and Moloch and other gods 
by human sacrifice. It was believed in that worship that that was what would bring prosperity to your family and to your descendants and to your livestock and land and all those things. But God was 100% against that, and you'll see that consistently through the Bible. But Abraham didn't know that. And so God uses this test, will you give up Isaac? And he just thinks, oh, wow, in this, I, I, this, I'm putting some thoughts together. But I think this is probably, could be very accurate that Abraham's thinking, maybe this God in this aspect, this one who's called me to follow him, this one who said he'll provide for me, uh, maybe he is like the other gods in this aspect. And he comes to realize at the end of the story that no, God is not like that at all. In fact, God does not require a human sacrifice to make, to to uh, bless the nations, which is God's promise to Abraham. Uh, He does not require human sacrifice. In fact, I shared this last week. If you imagine the the picture of the the knife uh, being turned away from Isaac and towards God himself, that God himself would take the wrath that our sins deserve upon himself instead of it being poured on anyone else. And the, the TSN turning point in that story is that they're going up the hill and they're carrying the wood and the, the knife and things for, the, for this human sacrifice that God will not allow to happen. But he's testing Job. And this is, what, uh, this is what comes out of the mouth of Abraham, who's at times not trusted God and at times trusted God. He's wavered back and forth. And this is uh, what he says. He says, God himself will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb. Of course, God does provide a lamb, literally, that day, but God also provides Jesus in the future. See, all this Old Testament stuff, it's got hints, it's got clues, it's got types and shapes and shadows, and it's got all these things that just keep pointing and saying, there's a one coming. There's one coming. There's one coming. And he's the one who will be the savior of all mankind. So now we get to the story of Joseph. We get to the story of Joseph. So how do you handle haters, Joseph? <laughs> he's a favorite son. He's hated by his brothers. And it gets worse when he tells them his dreams. So he has a couple dreams. I'll just share one of them. The one that was read, basically, sheaves of wheat. That's how you, you know, this is before Baylor's. Sheaves of wheat in the field. And his, that he's, set up, and then ones that represent his brothers, and his is in the middle, and they all bow down. These wheat sheaves, which represent his brothers. Well, can you imagine? I don't know. I have, I don't have, this is a family with 12 brothers, and there's one sister, Dinah, but there's 12 brothers, and they're sort of, they um, have this interesting dynamic amongst them. Can you imagine? I don't know how big your family was, but if your siblings told you one day, you know, I had a, a dream that in my dream, you are bowing down to me. Do you just think that would make relationship a little harder? I mean, at a certain age, that might get an instant response. Well, maybe at any age. Depends on the difference of the response. But that's, they were so, they, not, they hated that he was the favorite, and now they hated that he'd shared this dream about his exaltation over them. And so one day he's out, and he's going to uh, visit his brothers for, on behalf of his dad to see if they're doing what they should be doing. And they're not actually at the location where they said they'd be checking up on him, but they're at a different location. And he gets to that location, and his brothers see him coming, and they say, 
We've had it. This is our chance. Let's kill him. Let's kill him. Let's soak his coat of many colors. You know, Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. It wasn't Technicolor, but it was a nice coat. Let's soak it in animal blood, take it back to the father, and say, wild animals killed him. And we'll be done with this guy. And Reuben, the oldest brother, he's the, you know, responsible one. He's the oldest one. He says, no, no, let's not do that. Let's throw him into a, a cistern, a pit, and we'll, we'll hold him there. And I'm going to go away for a bit. And, and Reuben's probably cooking up a plan on how to make sure his brother doesn't die because that will come back on him, right? Because the oldest is always responsible, right? How many of you are oldest in your family? And keep your hand up if you felt like you were always responsible. Okay, okay, all right. It'll be healing time later where we'll pray for you. You know, <laughs> we'll have shrinks on site today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's so Reuben cooks up this plan but goes away, and while he's away, along comes this caravan, and the caravan is Ishmaelites. Now, if you remember your genie, if you remember the generations, there's Abraham who had a son named Isaac, but before that, he didn't trust God. See this pattern coming up? Not trusting God. He didn't trust God that God would give him a son like God had promised him because he and his wife were old. So he has another son through another woman, through Hagar, and that son is named Ishmael. So Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Isaac has Jacob, Esau. Jacob has these 12 boys and Dinah, the one girl. So, if you know your charts, and if you know how these people are related, these are the second cousins. A caravan of second cousins comes along. How many of you are really close to your second cousins? <laughs> okay, a couple of you are. Anyhow, uh, the caravan of second cousins, there's no closeness between the descendants of Abraham and the descendants of, uh, descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael. In fact, there's adversity to this very day. Throughout the generations, there's just been ongoing generational adversity for thousands of years between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of, uh, of um, Abraham. Just look at the Middle East. That's what it is. Every time you hear that someone's lobbed a rocket into Israel, that's Ishmael and Isaac still going at it. That's what it is because that's the descendants. Okay, so here comes along the second cousins, and they have a caravan full of stuff. They're going off to Egypt to make some money, and they just say, hey, it's Judah who comes up with the idea. Hey, why don't we sell our brother into slavery? Let's not kill him. Let's get some money out of it. We'll be rid of him. We'll come out the better, and our story to dad will still work, and they do. They sell him into slavery. They go back to dad with the blood-soaked jacket, and they say, look, your son is dead, and it was wild animals, and, the, and Jacob is devastated. And now Joseph goes to Egypt, and he's, he's sold as a slave into the house of Potiphar. And uh, I'm just going to read that part. Um, well, before I do that, he sold for 20 pieces of silver. Does anyone else, can you think of anyone else in the Bible who was betrayed or sold out for, like, pieces of silver? Yeah, the answer is always Jesus. You know how to go to church, right? Yeah, it's Jesus, right? Just, I want to just tell you, there's so many clues. There's so many things that point forward. And in this story, okay, before I jump into Joseph's story, my high school principal, he's a Christian man, and I would talk to him about things about the Bible and stuff like that. And as I was reading the Bible, because my dad paid me money to read the Bible, 
My dad said, if you read the Old Testament, I think I would get 50 bucks. And reading the New Testament, it was like 30 or something like that, which was a lot of money in the 80s. That was like a million dollars today. No, I'm just kidding. That's just to fool you younger ones. But anyhow, he, he, so, so I was reading through the Bible, and you know what? I was getting disappointed because before I thought, Abraham, what a hero. Oh, he's not such a hero. Oh, what about Noah? Oh, man, he got drunk and he was naked. Oh, man. And what about David? Oh, he, Bathsheba. Oh, my. Uh, all the heroes were f- dropping like flies. In my mind, as a kid, I'd heard their stories about all the heroic exports, exploits, but I hadn't heard all the dirty things they did. And so I said to my principal, and I said, I said, it seems like all these guys in the Bible, they weren't heroes. They were zeros. And he said, that's true, actually. He said, they were very human. In fact, the Bible presents them as they really were. It doesn't paint a picture of them being perfect. It just paints them as being human, sinful, like you and me. I was like, oh, okay. He said, the only hero of the Bible is Jesus. But then he paused. He paused, and I could tell he was thinking. He goes, except for maybe Joseph. I was like, what? Maybe Joseph? He goes, I don't know. Maybe he sinned in telling his brothers the story about the dream. But it seems like Joseph gets it all right. Now, you have a few characters in the Bible where you get a one-line sentence about them and you don't know about their sin. But any character that's developed, as much as Joseph is developed, and he gets a huge chunk of Genesis to develop his story, any character developed at that length, we begin to see their flaws coming through in 3D. But not Joseph. And you know what? I think Joseph, just throw it out there, I think it's like he's, a, he, he's in a way, he's like a type of Christ. Now, if you say we can pin one bad thing on him, he was a little bit too open about his dream with his brothers, or maybe he was too arrogant when he was young. And again, we know he was not sinless because only Jesus was sinless. But it's amazing. His story is actually quite amazing and a lot of similarities to Christ. So let's just read in, in chapter 39. It says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, was captain of the guard. He brought him from the Ishmaelites. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospers. I want you to hear every time it says the Lord was with Joseph. That's really important. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him, And that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Woo! Get a good manager, and all you have to do is look at your menu and pick your food. That's, oh, wow, this is amazing. Joseph was given great success by God. I think he probably had some natural giftings in management, but, but obviously it's the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had because of Joseph. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. I think that's the first time this phrase shows up in the Bible. 
He was well-built and handsome. I think, I think of, you know, Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you know, well-built and handsome. Anyhow, I don't know if Joseph looked like that or what. But it says, and after a while, his master's wife took notice. Uh-oh. Took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Do you know that the story, you can get it on Hoopla? Do you know what Hoopla is? Anyone ha- know what Hoopla is? Okay, if you, okay, so if you have a library card, you can get an app called Hoopla, and it allows you to take out five audiobooks a month just on your phone. So you don't actually have to go to the library. You just go, so I've taken out the story, the audio version of it, on my phone. And, I was li- and it's really good, actually. Sometimes you get an audio book, and it's like the guy reading it shouldn't, has no business reading books, right? <laughs> Out loud, at least. <laughs> he can still read them privately, I guess. <laughs> See, we're grace-filled here. Anyhow, uh, so this, this one is really good. It's got good music. The narrator's got that, you know, Doug Sigelkoe voice, you know, deep baritone that you just love to listen to. And then... It's characters that come in. So it's like when Potiphar says, or Potiphar's wife says, come to bed with me, it's a woman's voice on the audio saying, you know, come to bed with me. You know, that, the way I said it didn't sound. <laughs> that, did that sound seductive? Because I don't think it was. Anyhow, <laughs> but on the audio, on the Hoopla app, it's like, oh, I'm really engaging with the story because you're actually getting characters acting out their parts better than I just did. Okay, so come to bed with me, she says. Just, that's a plug for the Hoopla app. If you're, I love that you're reading this story. Keep reading the book. Keep using it like a workbook if you are. Mark it up. I'm marking mine up like crazy. It will be just like done when it's done. And, uh, but, but there's another way you can engage with the story is, is get the, the, the audio. Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? Now, very interesting. He's gone. Now, I don't know what age he is at this point. He's 17 when he's sold into slavery. How, who's 17 in the room? Anyone is 17? Raise your hand, okay? Yeah, some 17s here and there. Not too many, but that's the age. Old enough to drive a car, too young to vote, okay? That's what he was when he was sold into slavery. Now, he goes through 13 years of really terrible times after 17, up to the age of 30. So I don't know where he's at right here. When he's, when he's seen as well-built and handsome, maybe he's not 17, maybe he's 20, I don't know, maybe he's been a year or two in Potiphar's house at least because he's risen to prominence. That probably didn't happen the first day when he showed up as a slave. It probably happened over time. So he's probably young, 20-something, that's my guess. And he's been a while since he's been with his people. It's been a while since he's been with anybody who worships Jehovah or the God of Israel or the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It's been a while since he's had anyone to talk about God's covenant that he made with Abraham, that through Abraham, blessing would come to all the nations of the world. 
And that God was going to make Abraham into a great nation, but that through him, blessing would come. And of course, we know, we read the rest of the book, that's talking about Jesus. The blessing to the rest of the world was going to come through the arrival of Jesus. But it's been a long time to not be around people who share your faith in God. And I find it amazing, even if this is a year in, even if this is two years in, I don't know if you've ever been in a hostile environment for a year or two where people are actually hostile towards your faith. That's a long time. That's a long time. Here he is, and whether he's a year in, two years in, five years in, I don't know how, how far he in, far in he is. He says this, how then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He doesn't just say this is a wicked thing. He says, this is a sin against God. He remembers, he remembers whose he is, that he belongs to this God. He, he, he remembers, and he's held on to it. And it says, and though she spoke to Joseph day by day, she was relentless, he refused to go to bed with her or to even be with her. Now, that's, there's wisdom there. This story is, I'm not focusing today on all the things that Joseph did right. There's lots of good things. But this one we should always pick up, right? If you're attracted to somebody of the opposite sex, and they're not your husband or wife, and you know it would be a sin against God to sleep with them, then get away from them. Get your distance. Make it a priority in your life that you say, whoa, 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 I... I I don't want to play with fire in any way. I'm going to get burnt. They're going to get burnt. Everyone's going to get burnt. And so Joseph did the right stuff. And you know what? Sometimes even when you do it all right, you don't get a happy ending. Do you know that? You say, well, what if I do everything with integrity in my life? Then everything will work out right. It'll be good and I'll have good results. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Kurt said a really great thing in, in, when he was sharing earlier. God is playing the long game. He's working through generations. When you think about what Jesus' command is for us to forgive those who hate us, to actually lend them stuff and don't worry about whether we get it back, to, uh, to be merciful to them just like God is, you might be thinking, oh, yeah, because that will change their attitude or that will fix our relationship or that will mean I'll be blessed in this life for sure. And... Maybe, but maybe not. Because the long game God is playing is through generations and it's through more than just human history, it's through eternity as well. The upper story of God is huge. So what if God left Joseph as a slave in Potiphar's house or in the next stage as a prisoner in jail for the rest of his life and all he did was was faithful to God would we say wow God you just you ripped him off you were unfair he should have got payback in this life I don't think will any of us will ever stand before God someday and say man you were really unfair I think we'll see how God gave us more than we deserved through his grace and mercy towards us and in fact that's what motivates the believer, that's what motivates the Christian to respond lovingly towards those who hate us. 
We want to be as merciful as God. Well, I mean, we want to imitate God. We'll never be as merciful as God because we can't ever offer salvation to those who are undeserving. But we can forgive. That's one thing we can do, like Jesus did. We can forgive, like Jesus did, in his power, following his example. We can do that. And not because it will make this life hunky-dory. It might have some great results, but it might not. And what does Joseph know at this point? What does he know about how it's going to end up? He knows that the promises of God. He knows the covenant of Abraham. He knows that God is going to take care of this group of people, this nation, and out of this nation bring blessing to the world. But, but what about Joseph? What if he is not, and what if things don't turn out so rosy for him? So it goes on. I, I forget where I left off, but one day he went into the house to attend his duties None of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Again, the right thing to do. When she saw that he left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came to us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his, ma- until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, when, his, when Potiphar heard the lie, he obviously believed it. He burned with anger. How do you handle people who hate you? even unjustly, even because you've been slandered, even because you're being treated unjustly. So Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And then it says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that, all that was done there. So you see a pattern re- emerging here. He's faithful. He's integrous. And out of that excellence, he gains influence. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So Joseph's in prison, again, doesn't know when this timeline's going to end. He's in this 13-year period that we know about, but for him it could be the rest of his life. And these two guys come along. They're thrown into prison. Pharaoh's baker, Pharaoh's cupbearer. And uh, they don't know what the future's going to hold for them, but they both have these nightmares. And they basically, they have these dreams, and they come to ask Joseph about them, and Joseph interprets them for him because God gives him the ability to do that. And so he interprets them and says to to the cupbearer, you're going to be restored to your position, and you're going to serve Pharaoh again. Good. And to the baker, you're going to be, well, you're going to be baked. You're dead. It's over for you. You're going to die in three days. And that that comes to pass. And what he says to the cupbearer as he's ending his chat with him, he just says, hey, remember me. I'm forgotten here in prison. 
Nobody knows, you know, I'm assuming my dad doesn't know I'm here. My brothers wanted me gone. Nobody knows I exist. Would you please remember me? And it says in the story that the cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh's household, is elevated, and he forgets him. For two years. Two years is a long time to be forgotten in prison. For two years he's forgotten. And then something happens. Pharaoh has a dream. And in this dream, it's an amazing dream. He has this dream of uh, there's cows, there's fat cows and skinny cows, and the skinny cows eat the fat cows. And then there's heads of grain that are really full and wonderful, the perfect harvest. And then there's these sickly-looking heads of grain, and the, the sickly ones consume the good ones. And he wakes up and he's like, I don't know what this means. And nobody, all his wise men in all of Egypt, nobody can come up with what this means. And then the cupbearer goes, ding. I remember a guy. He's in prison and he told me my dream and he was able to interpret it. And so they send for Joseph. He comes forward. Now, this dream is amazing. I've been thinking about the financial implications of this dream. Joseph says the interpretation. There's going to be seven years of bumper crops followed by seven years of basically no crops. So, you know, wonderful crops for seven years and then famine. Now, can you imagine any farmer actually having that information in advance? I'm just talking about one farmer worth his salt, his or her salt, right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I mean, if you knew that for seven years every crop was going to be a bumper crop, and then you knew for seven years that nobody in any of the... Um, nations that compete with you for selling grain would have any crops. What would you do? I mean, how many bins would you build? How much land would you rent for those seven years? How much would you hoard every little curdle of grain for the right time to sell? This is what happens. He tells this to Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, wow. And then and Joseph says, my advice is you get a manager, a good manager, to manage this potential crisis and turn it into an opportunity. And Pharaoh said, how about you? You're hired. You're the second in command. Remember, he's second in Potiphar's house, second in the prison. Now he's second in the land. And the opportunity is massive. Now, you think about it. Seven years of prosperity, and you're the only nation that saved your grain. Then, seven years of famine. And now the nations start coming. And the price of grain in the first year is nothing compared to the price of grain in the second year. And it's nothing compared to what it's like in the third year, and the fourth year, and the fifth year, the sixth year. And by the seventh year, it's like, you want a kernel of grain? Well, we'll take a kernel of gold for, you know. It's crazy. The wealth of the nations flows into Egypt. It's like it's a great big sucking sound as the wealth of all the surrounding nations is, is, is absorbed into the nation. So now it's not just that Joseph is leading Egypt, which is significant enough, but he's leading the most powerful nation in the world. And that's when his brothers reemerge. So he was 17 when he sold into slavery. He's 30 when Pharaoh elevates him to second in the land. And now they are nine years into this 14-year dream plan. They're in the second year of famine, and the brothers already have nothing. Jacob says to his brothers, we've heard there's grain in Egypt. Would you go to Egypt and get us some food? So they go to Egypt, and they show up, and 
Jacob, who's dressed like an Egyptian, who's speaking the native language of the Egyptians and not speaking Hebrew to them, he's concealed, but he knows who they are. And he has the opportunity. He has all the power in the world to get revenge. And he doesn't. He doesn't. His brothers arrive. They play this game. You read, if you read the story, and the story is pretty cool, you know, uh, it's sort of they come, they give them grain, and then they put their silver back in their bag so that they can sort of arrest them again. Then they hold Simeon for a while, and, and then they go back to the father. And, it's, and there's a, a secondary story. I'd love to preach this sermon sometime on what's happening to Judah through it all. Because Judah's actually sort of like the second main character, and I didn't realize it until I was reading it this time. It's like so significant. It's like there's, Joseph is playing this Jesus-like character, basically doing everything right, suffering so that others can be saved. And here's Judah. He's just playing you and me. A guy who doesn't, who's made a lot of mistakes, does a lot of really questionable things in the early days, but then in the later days comes to realize his sin. And at the end is wanting to imitate what Joseph is doing. Very interesting. But I don't get to preach that this morning, so we'll have to stick with Joseph. So in the end, it's, it comes down to this. Judah has come back. He's now almost elevated to leadership. It's like his three older brothers, uh, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, have all disqualified them from leading the family. And now Judah, he's starting to come into his own, and he's the one who tells dad, we lied to you. We lied to you years ago. We took the lie. We, we sold our brother into slavery. And now he has risen to prominence and he's second to Pharaoh in the land. And we must go back. And then Jacob says, you can't go back because Joseph has required something I could never give. And that's Benjamin. So there's a brother that's never been part of all these adventures. And he's the other one. He's, he's the, the, the only true blood brother because Jacob had four different women. That's how he had 12 and 13 with Dinah. But he's the only blood brother to Joseph. He says, no, you can't take Benjamin back. But Joseph has required that. He said, no, you can't. And then Judah says, basically, I'll be responsible. So they go back. They meet with Joseph. Joseph again plays a game with them puts the silver back in their sacks and he puts the, the silver chalice of, his, uh, of his, his own personal silver chalice in Benjamin's sack and they get arrested and now he says to them, he says, uh, they say, you know, we're your slaves, you know, we're guilty, like they're just, they're totally at wit's end and he says, you know what, you can all go home but I'm going to keep Benjamin as my slave and that's where Judah steps forward and he just says, no, 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 no. Take me. Take me. So there's two characters. There's two characters. There's Joseph who's, in a way, he's playing the role of Jesus before Jesus has come on the scene. He's giving us a shadow or a type or an image of what Jesus will be like, that he will suffer so that others can be saved. Now, Joseph is still a human person. How did he come to the point where he could forgive his brothers for what they did? He's had 22 years, 17 to 39, away from his family. 22 years to get more bitter. And how is it he could forgive? And I want to just say simply this, is that 
Joseph got a hold of the upper story. He got a hold of the truth that's in the upper story, and he brought it down into his life, into his lower story. And I'm just going to read you the verses that tell us that. Genesis 45 and verse 5 says, The brothers are scared when they find out. Joseph finally reveals who he is. Or he reveals who he is. Yeah, I might have got the story a bit backwards there. But he reveals who he is, and this is what happens. They says they're scared out of their mind that he's going to get revenge on them. And he says, now... Joseph says to them, now do not be distressed, because they are distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves, because they were angry with themselves, for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So this is what Joseph is drawing from the upper story. He's saying, there's a covenant. There's an agreement between God and man from Abraham that goes way into the future through this nation that would have died in the famine. Why didn't they die? <gasps> Must be because God sent me here to save Egypt, but that through Egypt, Egypt, my family could be saved, and God is fulfilling the covenant. This upper story just keeps chugging along. What God is at work, this what is God doing thing, is really significant. And so don't be, you know, what you did was horrendous. Selling a brother into slavery, that's wrong. But you know what? God used it to save our lives. If you hadn't done this, we would all probably have died in the famine of the seven years. But because of this, it's not that the evil was good, but it's like Kurt was saying in the service earlier. God is working for our good. God is working for our good. I think one person said it this way. God is doing 10,000 things for you at any moment. And you might be at best aware of three of them. Because there's a work that he's doing in the upper story that we can draw down onto our lower story. And um, here's... so. They live for a while, and then Jacob dies, and the brothers get fearful again. They think, you know what? He only forgave us because dad was around. So we're dead now. And so they rush to Joseph, and they fall on their faces and say, make us your slaves or whatever. Just don't, you know, have mercy on us. And this is what Joseph says to him again. He says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So think of Joseph and then think of Jesus. Jesus suffered unjustly. There's no sin found in Jesus. There's no reason why Jesus should go to the cross. There's nothing. He was not dying for his own sins. He had no sin. In fact, that's the only way that he could take our sins upon him is that if he was sinless in the first place. All through the Old Testament, all the things that talk about, you know, a substitution, like an animal sacrifice or something like that, it was all it was about, it had to be something, you know, pure. You know, you couldn't just say, man, I've got this, I got this three-legged lamb, and, you know, it's sickly. Actually, I think it's almost dead. Let's offer that as a sacrifice. That was never the thing. It was always pure, spotless, and it was a symbol of sinlessness. So Jesus was the, that perfect sacrifice that comes. 
And Joseph is an image of that. And at the end of the days, at the very end, actually, the end of Jacob's life, just before he, di- he dies, he has a moment of reckoning with all of his boys. I mean, they need a moment of reckoning. But he brings these 12 boys together, and he begins to talk about their futures and all the significance and stuff. And he goes down the line, and he starts with Reuben, and Reuben has sort of lost his place of prominence in the family as the firstborn because of all sorts of different things. And, and, and Simeon and Levi are next, and they did some stuff. You know, there was a battle at Shechem, and circumcising other guys and whatever. You know, big story. They lost their prominence in the family. And then he gets to Judah. And as he puts his hands on Judah, he says some pretty significant words. I'll just read his his blessing for Judah. He said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Does that sound a lot like somebody's dream, Joseph's dream at the very beginning? You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return um, like a lion. You crouch. You lie down like a lioness. Who dares to rouse you? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from that between his feet, until he whom it belongs to shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So Jacob, just like those before him, he just says, you know what? Twelve sons, but with the, like I believe through the Spirit of God, he speaks over Judah the word, basically saying, there's a scepter, there's an authority, there's a kingly reign coming through your lineage. It's going to come through you, Judah. And, and he's going to be like a lion. And he's going to reign, and all the nations of the world will be bound to his obedience. I mean, who is he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. So here's this scoundrel. Jacob was a, Judah was a scoundrel in every way in, law, in his early years. But he comes to realize his sinfulness. And out of that, he becomes uh, the one through which Christ will come. It's the promise. It's the, it's the saving of lives that Joseph has talked about. And God brings it all back to that. So where are you in all this story? How do you bring the upper story into your lower story? Well, just a few things. Do you feel like God has forgotten you? Or maybe make it even more basic. Never noticed you in the first place. Do you think, do you think that God is seeing others maybe even, but just not you? I mean, when Jesus gives his promise to all of his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I think that would include, I will never forget you. I will be with you, just like Joseph. And the Lord was with him in slavery. And the Lord was with him in prison. What about your life? What are you going through? Is the Lord with you in job loss? Is the Lord with you in the, under the threat of bankruptcy? Is the Lord with you with the uncertainty of the harvest? Is the Lord with you in infertility? Is the Lord with you when your friends have left you and turned on you? Is the Lord with you in family conflict? The message of this story is that God has not forgotten you. 
but you may not understand everything that's working in this, in this short story and short time span of what you're going through. You may not understand how God is weaving that into his greater story. But his greater story is an unstoppable story. Just like he said, it's going to come to a point where all the nations will bow and recognize Jesus. And it's our attachment. So, so, so many times, this is the temptation in my life. I want to make the story about me. I want to make the story about my very small story. You know, when my wife and I faced infertility, that's one of the ones I mentioned. One of the great comforts in my life was that behind the scenes, God is working even this out for my good. Let me read you Romans 8, 28 one more time. It says, and we know, do you know? And we know that in all things, I listed several, but even more than that, all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do you know that? Do you know that in what you're facing to now, right now? I think God wants to bring that upper story reality and bring it very real and close to our lower story. So that we go, God, I'm going to thank you in this circumstance. I'm going to trust you in this circumstance. I'm going to believe you in this circumstance. If this circumstance persists for a long duration, I'm not going to quit trusting you. I'm not going to quit praising you. I'm not going to quit saying you're good. I'm not going to quit believing that you are working out something much grander than I could have ever designed. And that... Even if in this life, my financial situation doesn't change. My physical condition doesn't change. Those relationships are not restored. I mean, we're people of faith. We believe for all those things. Yet at the same time, we believe that what God is shaping is bigger and grander than what we could shape on our own. And say, God, we believe that you are working all things for our good. And whether that's good now or a good in eternity, we are the inheritors of eternal life. And so we're going to act now like we have everything then. It comes full circle. It comes back to Jesus saying, be merciful to those who hate you. Why? Because we've inherited eternal life. Because we have everything in Jesus. We're tied inexplicably... We're tied into his story, and his story is going to be good and bigger than our story. I want you just to stand with me this morning.